O Father, uphold thou me, that I may uplift thee. Amen. Jesus is with his disciples, passing through the villages of Caesarea Philippi, a bit north of the Sea of Galilee, near the slope of Mount Hermon, where in the coming week he will be transfigured before some of these disciples. And Jesus asks two questions. The first of them is this. Who do people say that I am? His disciples had been with him for nearly three years, and surely they would have heard what uh, the crowds had been saying about Jesus in his various venues. Well, some say, you're John the Baptist. The Jews didn't believe in reincarnation. And you may remember that Herod Antipas had John beheaded, but there were some who, like Herod, were superstitious and thought that somehow John had been resurrected. John was an important prophet. He could uh, prepare the hearts of people for the Messiah, which was his role, but he couldn't change the hearts of those to whom he spoke. And then some said, uh, well, some think you're Elijah. Elijah. Well, Elijah, of course, was a man of prayer. He was a man who uh, accomplished a lot in his own day. He withstood the uh, false prophets of Baal. He worked miracles by God's grace, working in and through him. I remember growing up, uh, as we celebrated the Passover, there was a, a chair set aside for Elijah, because in Jewish tradition, uh, it was believed that Elijah would come immediately before the Messiah, and he would announce uh, the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, of course, will tell his followers that the spirit of Elijah actually rested upon John the Baptist. I think as I was growing up, nobody really expected Elijah to show up at the door, even though uh, we gave a lip service to it. In the last chapter of the book of Malachi, there is a prophecy about the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that's where the word awesome is used correctly. Then they say, well, some people say you're one of the prophets. And in Matthew's account, it is... uh, Jeremiah, who was singled out as a possibility. And Jeremiah was a man who ran into trouble in his own day, some six centuries before Christ, as he confronted the people of Judah with their sin. He had uh, some things to say about the temple, which were not flattering at all. 
And perhaps some people thought of uh, Elijah and Jeremiah as part of this whole scenario of prophets who stood against evil and did great works in their own times. Jeremiah was patient. He was the undeserved sufferer of his day. And most significantly, he was the one who prophesied about the coming of a new covenant. So important is that prophecy that it is quoted in the eighth chapter of of the book of Hebrews, the longest New Testament quotation of an Old Testament text. Well, all of these suggestions from the crowds reveal one thing that they have in common, that the crowds didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They saw him as one of the prophets, not the prophet of whom Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 where he said, The Lord your God will raise up unto you a prophet from among your own people, and unto him you shall hearken, and who does not hearken to this prophet will be cut off. Even on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, on what we call Palm Sunday, The crowds were saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Many of them didn't understand that there was the prophet prophesied by Moses who would outrank all of these others. And even the disciples themselves failed to see this in the early stages of their relationship with Jesus. And so the Lord asks a second question. Who do you say that I am? This is not the first time the disciples asked that question. If you go back uh, early in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples were on a boat with Jesus and it's being swamped by waves and violent weather and Jesus calmed the storm and they said well who is this who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him well we know that Peter is the first to confess that Jesus is the Messiah first to confess and the first to deny him And yet, he was probably speaking on behalf of the other disciples as well. By this time, they were coming to that conclusion, most most certainly. And Jesus acknowledges that straight away. And he tells them, don't tell others about this. Why would Jesus not want them to tell others? others about his messianic identity? Well, because of the false expectations of the people of Israel. When I uh, 
had to confront my rabbi with my faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he said to me, well, I don't know how you can believe in him because uh, he is not bringing us the peace that the Messiah is supposed to bring. And, uh, of course, the rabbi was thinking only on a horizontal level. And that was how Israel was thinking, too. Just let us have peace. Jesus goes on, though, having received their confession. He says, the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. That didn't go over very well at all. Winston Churchill was speaking at the funeral of Neville Chamberlain uh, early in the war. And he said, it is not given to man to know what awaits him. Otherwise, life could be intolerable. And yet Jesus knew what awaited him. For he was more than just a prophet, as the crowds were suggesting. And this text that we have read today represents a turning point in the Gospel of Mark, where now the focus will be upon his ascent into Jerusalem, his rejection by the priests, and the religious leaders, and the terrible crucifixion itself, which he anticipated. So again, it is said in Acts, pardon me, in, in Mark 10:33, the Son of Man will be mocked and spat upon, flogged and killed. This expression, the Son of Man is an important expression. We have to understand that the expression son of man is a common enough expression in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is referred to again and again as son of man. And that is simply to express the humble status of man over against the God whom he serves. But then when we get into Daniel and Daniel's prophecy, it's not just a son of man, but it's the son of man of whom Daniel prophesies. And this son of man will come in the clouds of heaven and he will be a judge and the books will be opened if you read Daniel 7. Uh, and Daniel himself says over and again in his book that I was deeply disturbed by these things. I was alarmed. I was anxious. Uh, it was not an easy thing to be a recipient of God's revelation. And he was deeply distressed as he tried to understand just what was going to happen. 
Caiaphas, Matthew 26, verse 63, speaks to Jesus, asking him, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answered, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, a direct reference to Daniel's prophecy. And in John's Gospel, we hear Jesus say that the Father has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That gives new breadth and meaning to the expression, the Son of Man. Part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Aramaic is the oldest extant language we know of. It's older than Hebrew, even though it uses the Hebrew alphabet. It's a different kind of Semitic language. But one thing about Aramaic is that it has a larger vocabulary than Hebrew. That's why it became the lingua franca of Jesus' day. It was the language of commerce. It was the language of specifics. And in Hebrew, the, uh, the word for son is the word ben. But in Aramaic, it's bar. And uh, I read one scholar who said this word in Aramaic carries greater freight than it does when it's used in Hebrew, which is what we find in Daniel. We find it carrying greater weight. He is the one, this son, the son of man, who will execute judgment upon the earth. He has the authority to do that because of his unique identity as the son of God. And so what we have here is a correspondence between the suffering servant of Isaiah and the son of man in Daniel. The scripture must be fulfilled in me, Jesus said. And then he quotes Isaiah. He was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus identified with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53, verse 12. He must be numbered with the transgressors. And Luke gives us this, this reference in chapter 23 of Luke's gospel, verse 37. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you believe that in them you have eternal life and yet Although their testimony points to me, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. The scriptures must be fulfilled, and yet you refuse to come to me. What scriptures would we be thinking of in the Old Testament? Well, there are many of them. Going back as far as Abraham when he was to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Where is the lamb, Father? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says to his son, My son, God himself will provide the lamb. 
Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. And the other Old Testament examples make this clear. We've already alluded to the, the Passover and the fact uh, of uh, the lamb. Remember how the Jewish families sacrificed a lamb for each family? And they splashed the doorposts and the lintel with the blood? And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, the Lord said. And then there was the Day of Atonement itself. And Leviticus, uh, the 16th chapter, which is like a, a working model of what would eventually take place when the Son of God offered himself as the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And then there is the time in the wilderness in the book called Numbers, which is simply called Bamidbar in the Hebrew, meaning in the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness that the Jews, my people, the greatest group of grumblers who ever lived, were upset that all they had to eat was manna. Manna in the morning, manna in the evening. We despise this food. And God sent uh, snakes among them. And many died because of these poisonous snakes. This is in the 21st chapter of Numbers. You can read about this harrowing incident. And Moses was told to make a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. And anyone who looked at the bronze surf serpent in faith would be healed of his snake bite. And Moses did that, and many were healed because they looked and believed. And Jesus bears witness to this. Remember when he is with Nicodemus in the third chapter of John, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Here's that Son of Man again. The Son of Man must be lifted up that all who believe in him may have eternal life. John 3.14 Looking with faith on this raised object brought healing. Jesus said in John's Gospel again, chapter 12, verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, shall draw all men to myself. He spoke of the kind of death he was anticipating, and through it, he would draw people to himself. I couldn't believe in Jesus Christ were it not for his cross. He would be meaningless to me were it not for his cross. We live in a day of the trivialization of the significance and essential character of the cross of Christ. But without the cross of Christ, there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. There is no healing. And Peter responds to this uh, statement of Jesus about the inevitability and imminence of his suffering by say, saying, no, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus in Mark 8.32. 
And Jesus responds by saying, Away with you, Satan. You think as men think, not as God thinks. Men think that uh, everything we can do here on earth is the final answer. But we need God's provision for us by way of the cross. When we think of our sin, which Jesus came to bring salvation for, what do you think is the essential vice, the most basic vice of which we are all guilty? We hate to see it in others, and we are usually very slow to identify it in ourselves. C.S. Lewis said, the utmost evil and the essential vice in each of us is pride. Pride. And Jesus himself said in Mark 7.22 that pride defiles us. Peter is being Peter. You're the Christ. You deserve better than that. You deserve glory. You don't deserve punishment. The old theologians from Augustine right up through Martin Luther used a Latin expression, curvatus in se. We are curved inwardly. We are curved in upon ourselves. We think of ourselves as the most important thing not of God. We don't worship him as we ought. The cross is the only sufficient answer to the pride of man. The cross is the only answer to our need for salvation. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Peter, who at first rejected the idea, came to see it very clearly. When he himself will quote from Isaiah, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, he says, by his wounds, healing has come to us. One author whom I've enjoyed reading over the years, he's late now, Fred Buchner, wrote, the cross, the cross is where God's mighty heart was broken, that the healing power of God himself could th flow through it into a sick and broken world. Who do you say I am? That's the most important question that can be asked of you. But there's a follow-up question, which is equally important. What will you do with him who is called the Christ? And how has his identity as the Son of God affected your identity. 
You know, in the New Testament, the word Christian was rarely used to define a believer in Jesus. And when it was used, it was usually something not far from a swear word. But the expression that occurs again and again in the New Testament to identify a Christian is the expression, in Christ. To be in Christ is to be a Christian. And we are in Christ through faith in Christ and what he has done for us. And it is all an expression of God's grace for us. That great old theologian, Jonathan Owen, said it so well. The consideration of eternal life as the free effect of the grace of God in Christ is a thousand times more full of refreshment than if we should conceive of it as a reward for our own doings or merit. Are you refreshed today in the knowledge of Christ's love for you on the cross? As we heard in the beginning of our service, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And the gift of life is ours through faith in him. When the Jews cried out in the text we read in Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel earlier, his blood be upon us and upon our children. If it's said the right way, that's a good statement. May his blood be upon us that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for him who is the, the true Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that we can celebrate his redemption on this day which is called good because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. May each of us in this hallowed place experience the love of Christ anew today or perhaps for the first time as we turn from ourselves and our pride and are humbled as we gaze upon your cross through faith and see us as one for whom Jesus died and lives again to bring us to God. Amen. Amen.